0: Amen. So, Acts chapter 10. Uh, so, um, we're going to do a lot of reading, particularly through the, the chapter uh, uh, of Acts 10, and I'll interject some uh, commentary throughout just to kind of keep us on on track. Um, this week, what I'm doing is I actually took the New Living Translation, and I'm going to be reading through that in Acts chapter 10. So, if you have your NIV on your lap, or your ESV, or your New King James, or whatever Bible version you have, and you're like, what in the world is that? Um, that that's the New Living Translation, and, and for narratives like this its actually very helpful. If you don't have a Bible, then I'm going to encourage you, if, if you want to get up right now and walk in the back and grab one, there's some on the shelf right there by the sound booth, there's some just outside those doors, uh, grab one of those Bibles, take it home with you, that's fine. Um, you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, boy, are we cheap, um, but uh, take that with you. Um, but, but let me encourage you to, to make sure that you know what we're talking about here is not the doctrine of a church, it's not the opinion of a guy that stands up here with very little hair. This is God's word. And so may we treat it as such. So in Acts chapter 10, we, we start this story, and it says this. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was the captain of an Italian regiment. But he was a devout God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. And so he had given generously to the poor. He had prayed regularly to God. And during one of his regular prayer times, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Now, seeing an angel tends to get your attention, right? I mean, that tends tends to wake you up a little bit. So his prayer time just got very interactive. Cornelius looks at the angel in terror, verse four, and he says, What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied to him, your prayers, your gifts to the poor, they've been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So one thing that stood out to me so far in our study of Acts together, it's funny to me how specific Jesus was when he talked to Paul, how specific he was when he talked to Ananias, how specific the angel is here with Peter. There's no doubt where you're supposed to go and who you're supposed to find there. Verse 7, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants, called a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened. So he's talking about what happened in this vision, and he sent them to Joppa. Now, if you're watching a movie, this is where it just kind of fades to black and then fades to another scene. Verse 9, the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It's about noon, He was hungry. I love that. Come on, it's noon. I'm hungry. So what happens? While a meal is being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay. This is a little different than our Sunday afternoon nap while we're waiting for lunch. Okay? This is very different, and you're about to see why. Verse 11. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in this sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Now, I've had dreams like that. but, But what God just did in this visit, he showed Peter a picnic spread, if you will, of live animals, birds, reptiles. I mean, God is, is showing to him all of these animals, both clean and unclean, and then he's commanding Peter, you eat from among these animals. And for a hungry guy, it's not a bad deal. works out pretty well. He's being offered meat kebabs of all kinds. And in this, this zoo picnic, for, for a for person who was a less than fussy Hebrew, wasn't as, you know, walking the straight and narrow, wasn't as particular about, you know, how far he might have walked on the Sabbath or perhaps what he did to make himself clean. I mean, he, he followed the law, but there was some gray area for Peter, I think we can safely assume, just based on his personality and his interaction with Jesus and with others in, in the Gospels. This vision, even for a guy like Peter, would have been horrific. It doesn't matter how much his stomach growled in hunger. To to see these animals being taunted, or being taunted by these animals being draped in front of him would have been torture. And to make it worse, the voice calls out to him and says, Kill, eat, enjoy, satisfy your hunger. And Peter, like any good Jew, verse 14 says, no, Lord. Okay, stop right there. That's one of the most fascinating phrases in Scripture. If you ever want to do a Bible study, just look for, the, for times when the, the, the phrase together is put together, no, Lord. Kind of ironic. Lord means my master, the one in charge, the one I should listen to, the one I should pay attention to. And Peter hears the voice of God saying, rise up, kill, and eat. And he's like, no, Lord. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. I mean, that's the feeling that you get. You get, here, let me, okay, this is conjecture, so I don't know, where do I need to stand to give my opinion, over here? Okay. Peter's had a rough go of it in the past couple of months. Peter swore to Jesus, I will never leave you, I'll never betray you, all these ones will take off, but not me, I'll stand here like a man. And then three times before the sun rose the next day, he had already denied Jesus. Three times. And so when Peter (laughs) hears, hey, get up, kill, eat, you got to think Peter's like, oh, no, 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 I am not going down like that. Not a chance. You ain't going to trick me into that. Yes, I'm hungry. But no, I have never, nor shall I ever. (gasps) Nailed that one. And what happens next? The voice spoke again, hey, (laughs) don't call something unclean that I've called clean, which is hilarious. So Peter's like, I have never eaten anything unclean. And God says, hey, 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 don't call it unclean. I said it was clean. And then it continues, verse 16, the same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up into heaven. And you don't know, I wonder if Peter is starting to sense a pattern with God. This number three in the life of Peter just keeps coming. He denies him three times. Oh, You're going to deny me three times. Then he denies him three times. Oh, And then if you remember, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he meets Jesus on the shore, and then Jesus asks him, do you love me? How many times does he ask him? Three times. And then here he sees his vision three times. And he's like, "What?" verse 17 kind of encapsulates all of it. Peter was perplexed. What could the vision mean? Well, just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, I mean, so so you've got the movie scene. It's all kind of coming together. Cornelius' men come to the house. Is Simon Peter staying here? Meanwhile, Peter's up on the roof puzzling over the vision. The Holy Spirit says to him in verse 19, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and he sees the men and he says to them, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, a well-respected by all the Jews. And a holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So then Peter invited the men to stay for the night. And the next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. So as Peter's wrestling with this vision don't call unclean what i have called clean as he's perplexed about it and he's he's running it through his head and he's trying to understand what it is that god's trying to teach him these men come from cornelius's home and say we'd like you to come with us and as 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 he's wrestling with it he's received a message from god that says hey when these guys come you just go don't ask questions you go so he goes Verse 24, they arrive in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. He is an excited man. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, man, I'm a human being just like you. And so then they talked together, and they went inside where many others were assembled. Verse 28 is a significant verse. Peter said to them, and now remember, Peter, a Jew, standing in the home of a Gentile, and he looks at these Gentile folks who are in Cornelius' house, and he says this, you all know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or or to associate with you. But, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, why am I here? Okay, so I want to spend just a couple of minutes in there because I don't think we catch the full weight of verse 28 as, as Americans who live in the year 2016 because we don't quite understand how big the divide was between Jew and Gentile. We have a difficult time wrapping our head around how how offensive this could be. So let me help just a little with some of the most politically incorrect things I've ever said. Told you it would be interesting. So let's replace in verse 28... The words that don't mean much to our culture with words that would be similar for us to understand it better. Peter told them this, you know again it's against our laws for a Ravens fan to enter the Steelers fan's home. <laughs> I had to ease you into it because it's going to get worse, so laugh while you can, get the tension out. <laughs> yeah. Careful what we ask for. Here it comes. You know it's against our laws and our current customs for a conservative man, politically, to enter the home of a liberal politician or to even associate with you. You know it's against our laws and our customs for a straight man to enter the home of a homosexual or to associate with you. You know it's against our laws and customs for a white man to enter into the home of a black man or to even associate with you. That's what Peter just said in the home of Cornelius. You say that today, you're going to get worked. Right? But it wasn't Peter being offensive. It wasn't Peter trying to be politically incorrect for effect. It was Peter... Representing the cultural norm of the day, there was such a divide between Jew and Gentile, and for good reason in some ways. I mean, Gentiles didn't observe the same cleanliness laws, not like did you wash your dishes or do your laundry laws, but they would eat things that in the Jewish religion would have made them unclean. So if you went into the home of a Gentile, there was potential for something there that would make you ceremonially unclean and it would affect your ability to worship. And so they would never have entered into the home of a Gentile. And yet here is Peter entering into the home of Cornelius the Gentile. And what he recognizes is that's a false divide. Unfortunately for many of us, it's not so false of a divide. So so I'm going to I'm going to use names. None of them are here in Carroll County. This is just names. It would literally be me saying to Michael, Ron, and Seth, you know, as a straight man, I just can't come to your house because you're gay. It would be me saying to Tom and Shar and Rick, you're a liberal. I I can't be around you. I can't be seen with you. It would be me saying to Ed or Josh, or Rob, or Sherard. You know what, man? I'm a white guy, and I don't hang out in your neighborhood. Folks, those are false divides. Now, here's the problem, is that we live in this world that's so split into two that it's like, well, no, no. See, Frank, this is church. We talk about God here. We don't talk about politics or race or sexual preference here that has no place in the church let me let me challenge that for just a moment how you view god and even more than that how you view god's view of you affects how you view all these folks over here and so it does have a place in church Peter's state of being perplexed is done, which I found fascinating. He stands in Cornelius' home and he's like, hey guys, I'm not supposed to be here. You know I'm not supposed to be here, but I know I'm supposed to be here, so why am I here? I mean, it's that weird like, okay, there's gotta be this tense moment happening in Peter, but it's all cleared up. He says, no, God was very clear to me. He said that I should no longer think of anybody as impure and unclean. That's not how I should view people anymore. So tell me why I'm actually here. And Cornelius does, verse 30. And, and, and I'm going to, uh, I'll skip a little bit just for time's sake, because one thing, and this is kind of a teaching moment for you real quick, one of the things that happens in this chapter is the story of what happened with Cornelius in his vision, and the story of what happens with Peter in his vision is repeated a number of times. And the reason for that is Luke, in his writing of the, the book of Acts, he's trying to get people to understand this really happened. Don't miss this. This is, this is exactly what happened and why we stand there. So Cornelius replies and says, okay, here's the deal. Four days ago, I was praying. It's about three o'clock. An angel appeared to me. He said, your prayer has been heard. So send people to Joppa. Get this guy, Simon Peter. Um, and so, verse 33, I sent for you at once. It was good of you to come. Now here we all are, waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given to you. We've talked about softballs before. That's one just lobbed right up there. Because Peter's sitting there in their presence, and he's been prepared by the zoo picnic, and he's ready. Cornelius wants to hear the message, and so Peter's going to give it to him. Verse 34, Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and who do what is right. See, this is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is a peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. See, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And we apostles, we apostles are witnesses of everything he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and we, we drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Peter's message is astonishingly clear. It doesn't matter um, what your family heritage is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. It doesn't matter if you've done good deeds or good works. It all comes down to this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and has risen from the dead? Do you believe that? Then you're acceptable to him and you've received forgiveness of your sins if you say, Jesus, I need you to save me. That's it. It all comes down to that. None of this other stuff. It all comes down to who Jesus is, what he did, and how you'll respond to it. What's awesome, (laughs) I think part of me is envious here of Peter. Part of me would be like terrified if this happened. But Peter didn't even get to finish his message. I mean, Peter's in the middle of preaching, and in verse 44 it says, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. I mean, Peter's up there getting ready to make his big, conclusive point. He's ready for the invitation, and he turns around, and all of a sudden people are like, yes! All right, well, I guess my work here is done. The Lord be with you. I mean, mean, that's the way to end a message. Hmm. They're amazed. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed when they saw the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. They saw evidence of the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, listen, can can, can anybody object to their being baptized? I mean, he's he's obviously not talking to the Gentiles. He's he's talking to the Jews that are there with him. Can can anybody object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? Don't miss that phrase. (laughs) As different as they are, They have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. So this story of Acts chapter 10 is a story of a boundary, not just being crossed, but being obliterated. So think about this, Peter has now reached into the Gentile community. He has preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that brings life. He has seen Gentiles, of all people, Gentiles, place their faith in Jesus Christ, receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit coming into their life. They're baptized, they want Peter to stay so they can continue to be teached. That was close, taught, there we go, teached. My English teacher's like, oh, oh um taught they want peter to stay smile so they can be taught it's an amazing moment everybody's excited right i mean when the news travels back to jerusalem i mean what what kind of response are the apostles going to give to peter like oh brother i'm so proud of you for going i'm so excited that you gave yourself to these people i'm so excited that you crossed that boundary that took courage and bravery that that none of us had i'm so proud of you is that what happened A celebration <gasps> no Look at verse 1 to chapter 11. Soon the news had reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. When Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. Verse 3 You entered the home of the Gentiles and even ate with them they said. You ate with a Gentile? You ate with a household of Gentiles? What were you thinking? Peter explains everything that happens, and again, this is where he The the repetition of Luke comes in. He says, listen, here's the deal. I was praying. I was on the roof. The sheet came down. There were animals in it. Take, rise up, take, eat. I said, no. He said, yes. Do it, it. No, he said, yes. Three times it happened. I went to Cornelius, started talking. The Holy Spirit came. It was an amazing thing. Verse 17, and this is where my conclusion is for Peter. Not my conclusion, his conclusion. You're stuck for a little while longer. So verse 17, God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, who am I to stand in God's way? If if this is the same gift that crosses boundaries, who am I to get in the way of this? Who do I think I am? Thankfully, verse 18, the others heard this, they stopped objecting, and they began praising God, and they said, oh, okay, now we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life, which is kind of ironic. So God does this amazing movement among the Gentiles, and, and the, 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 the leadership is irritated about it, and then Peter makes his case, and the leadership, in, his, in essence, says, well, then we approve of what God has done. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> Since God gave these Gentiles the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Some significance in that verse, not the least of which is this, the standing that we have is one that's been given to us, not one that we earned, and certainly not one that we deserve. I think often we view our standing before God as as something we've earned instead of a privilege that's been given to us because of his grace, mercy, and love. When, when When you begin to fall for that lie that you have earned it and you deserve it, please keep in mind the very premise of the gospel, the very premise of the gospel, the very foundation of the gospel. Yes, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, of whom I am chief, He died for my sins and then victoriously rose from the grave again three days later. And he'll forgive any who trust in his name. Yes, that is the gospel declaration. But what makes the gospel necessary and what makes the gospel possible is this phrase. God is awesome and you're not. So when we stand and think for some twisted reason that we are standing before God and his... He's seeing our worship as a sweet smelling sacrifice that he is enjoying and we stand there and somehow we cling to it thinking it's something we've done. We are deceived. The reason our offering of worship is being accepted by God, the reason we have peace with God is because of grace. So many of us fall for the lie that our standing is our own doing. Many of us fall for the lie that it's not only up to us to earn that standing but it's also up to us to protect that standing. And oftentimes we try to protect it from other people. So in so doing we say and act in hurtful ways to those who need God to reach them. Or maybe worse we stand back and we say nothing and we just look skeptically at them. And and, and actually we do what the early Hebrew Christians did and we hide and live behind a boundary never crossing it with the message of the gospel. And so, one of the driving forces in this what if series has been us using the phrase over and over with you, let's get off the hill, right? Let's bring this message of good news to the people who need it. Yes, you need it too. I need it too. Let's go. Let's do this. In order for that to happen, here's the big what if. What if? our love for others had no boundaries? I want you to think just for a moment of how that might apply to you. What if our love for others had no boundaries? I mean, Peter did something that's unthinkable, and not only does he go into the home of a Gentile, he actually does share a meal with them, which, which that is as personal as it gets in that time period. I mean, what would that be like today? What would that look like today? Is it a, a political party that you disagree with and you would, you would go and sit down with that person and share a meal with them? Is it, is it a homosexual? Would you go and, and engage them in conversation? Is it a person who, who's hurt you in the past? Is your boundary just drawn right next to them? So now by me using those three specific illustrations, somebody of a different political party, homosexual, or somebody who's hurt you in the past. For many of us, what just happened is we saw where our boundary is. That, that, that little voice in our head spoke up, oh, I want our love to know no boundaries. I want to go running off this hill with the message of good news, but, but to them? Mm. God's love has no boundaries. Uh, what's amazing to me, <laughs> and he doesn't know this yet, he's about to. The amount of prayer that goes into a Sunday morning worship service is is immense. It's a lot. Um, and, and um, <laughs> this morning as I'm praying, I'm like, Lord. I think I know where I'm supposed to land on this. I've been working on this. I told, I told Pastor Bill Brown too. I'm like, man, I have trashed this thing and started it over a couple of times because it's just, uh, uh. it's like, Lord, let me make, it, make, make sure my big point really is the right big point out of this passage. So this morning I was wrestling with God just before I drove up here. Andy preached the point. Not only did he preach the point, he used the very verses I have in my notes. I mean, it was, I'm like, I'm giggling, and my wife's like, what are you doing? Like, never mind, never mind. mind." It's amazing, and it is God is awesome. God is weaving this whole thing together, and it goes like this. Please understand this. If If our love knows no boundaries, God's love knows no boundaries. John 3, 16 is a beautiful picture of God's love knowing no boundary. God loved the world so much he gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's a picture of this great love that God has for us. The problem, and let me, let me deal with it, take an argument, maybe take a bullet out of your chamber right now, because some of you may be locking, loading on me, and that's okay. But the most common argument within Christian circles is that by engaging those people, when we draw the boundary, by engaging those people who are on the other side of the boundary, who who literally have rejected Jesus, and let's be clear, oh, well, well. (laughs) I prayed. This is what came to mind. We're going with it. On this side of the boundary, people who exist over there, please know their greatest sin isn't the most visible one. Their greatest problem is they've rejected Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay? So, 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 so when, we, when we argue that if we go over that boundary and we go to those people who have rejected Jesus Christ, then what we're doing is we're accepting their sin, but instead what we should do is we should hold them at a distance. They're unclean, stay away. We should preach at them hard like a, like a junior high PE teacher. Do your push-ups. I mean, that's, that's the way we should approach those people who are on the other side of the boundary. We let them know you're kindling if you don't accept Jesus Christ because you're going to hell and burning in flames. But if that's your thinking, not only have you missed the meaning of John 3.16, you've missed the meaning of John 3.17. Because John 3.16, God loved the whole world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his son into the world so that the world through him would be saved. That's John 3 17. But we like to stand up and do the condemn. And you. And you, I'm trying not to point at anybody individual, but you. You, you're going to hell. You're going to hell and today you are too. What are we doing? It's not our job. It's it's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you don't have to go to hell. That's the message of the gospel we should be preaching to the people who live, dwell, and make their living on the other side of the boundary that we have concocted. God's love knows no boundaries. You see it in the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 8 and 9. I mean, you see him dealing with the outcasts of society. First, a leper. A leper comes to him and he's dealing with his leprosy, and Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches him. Why would you touch the leper of Jesus? I mean, the disciples had to be losing their minds. What are you doing? Don't touch the leper. He's a leper. Well, Jesus knows. Now, I'll fast forward just because of time. So you so get Matthew chapter 9. You got the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. Again, our culture doesn't translate that well. So in our mind, we think IRS official, which is bad enough. I'm just going to be honest. But, but, but let's, let's be clear. The tax collector this time was way worse than that. The tax collector was a traitor to his fellow countrymen. The tax collector was a Hebrew sellout to the Romans. He's one of the most hated people in that culture. And yet Jesus reaches out to Matthew, a tax collector, and brings him into the disciples. Mama John chapter 5, you've got this Samaritan woman comes to the well where Jesus is sitting. And, And there is a lot in that story. Not the least of which is she's a Samaritan woman. A woman of a different ethnicity that, that the Hebrews would have nothing to do with. And yet Jesus sits there and engages her, and it surprises her as a Samaritan woman. So, not only, I mean, and, and understand this culture, right? Samaritan, but she's a woman too. Jesus should not be talking to a woman by himself. He certainly shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan. And yet he engages her in full conversation even after he finds out, like he needed to find it out because he already knew. She's had five husbands. The guy she's living with isn't her husband. So in essence, she's, she's trading sex for rent. And he looks at her and he says, listen, what are you doing? If, let, me, let me tell you of the drink that I can give you so you will never be thirsty again. Stop trying to fill that thirst with something that can't satisfy you. Stop trying to cram these, these fake relationships into this 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 part of your heart that will never be satisfied apart from Jesus Christ. And he says, stop doing that. And, and so Jesus does the unthinkable, and the disciples come back from getting food, and they're like, it says none of them said anything. They didn't have to. Jesus' love knows no boundaries. You get Mark chapter 5. An amazing story of this man who nobody can control, possessed with a demon, a legion of demons. And they have no idea what to do with him. And so they, they do what they can. They chain him, they bind him, they put him up in the tombs, they put him up into the, the caves that are carved out as tombs, and they try to leave him behind. But even if the, the chains aren't strong enough to hold him, he just bursts right out of them. And it says at night, he continued to cut himself. And scream. This guy has control over nothing in his life. Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee. Gets out of the boat. (laughs) This is a scene I would love to see happen. Oh, okay. So as they're coming across the sea, that's when the big storm happened. And Jesus is resting. And the disciples are freaking out don't you care, we're about to die, oh, we're gonna die, and Jesus is like, oh, shh, he goes back to bed, and, and the disciples, it says the disciples are like, oh, and he says, and Jesus responds to the disciples, what? where's your faith? I mean, that, that just happened, right, that just happened, they get to the other side of the sea, they poke, they, I'm having word problems this morning, they park their boat, there we go, Like you park a boat anyway, so I have more problems than word problems, evidently. You park your boat. Jesus and the disciples get off the boat. They're standing on the beach. And running from the cliffs is this raving lunatic who no one could control, who's not clothed, screaming, and then running down towards the disciples and Jesus. What do you think the disciples are thinking right then? Half faith, half faith, half faith, half (laughs) faith, half faith, half faith. I mean, they were just reprimanded for it, and here he comes. Oh! And Jesus engages him in conversation. Jesus engages him in conversation. He does the unthinkable, and when the demons make a request, he says, "Sure," and he puts the demons into the pigs, and the pigs jump off the cliff. And this man now, here's an amazing thing. When when Word gets back to town, the people who owned the pigs come running because they just lost thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. They come running back and what does it say they see? The man sitting clothed in his right mind. Whew. Because Jesus love knows no boundaries. So what keeps us from loving beyond the boundaries we've Erected. It's one of the things is fear. I mean we we fear what other people will think. We do. We fear what other people may say. We 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 fear. So what is fear? Fear is a result of the uncertainty about punishment. That's why perfect love casts out fear, because for the believer, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. But we fear. So so what we need to do is understand that, no, no, we are loving as Jesus loved. We're loving as God loved. Let's push past fear. Another reason we don't cross over the boundaries is this belief, even though we would never say it, but it's this, this belief that those who need the gospel need to live much more pure and right lives before I can reach them with the gospel. Hey, that's backwards. Right? We have this belief, even though we would never say this, that we actually don't need to cross the boundaries because those people on the other side of the boundary, they've made the choice to be there. May I share something with you? That means you don't understand what it means to be dead in sin. You can't stand over a corpse and yell at it, be alive! Because there's no breath in it. There needs to be new life introduced. And that's what Jesus offers, new life. I think the greatest reason why we don't cross the boundary, the greatest reason that we stay short and we don't go after those people who would be those who are over the boundary is that we forget what it means to have experienced grace. I think for many of us, we've fallen for the lie that somehow we've earned our standing before God, and they should too. We we, we need to understand, as Peter understood, this is a gift that has been given to you. It has nothing to do with anything about you. It has been given to you. It's First it's John, how great a love has been lavished upon us that we could be called the children of God. How amazing is that, that, that in our lives, our salvation has been granted to us like the little child who's been adopted. Think about that. What has the little child who's been adopted into a family done to earn that adoption? Nothing. It's, it's a mom and dad coming and saying, we're going to embrace you and bring you into our family with all the benefits, and let's be honest, the other part, that comes with being a person who grows up with that last name. You are now my child. And what we need to understand is that's who we are in Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the family of God, adopted fully with full benefits, full inheritance, full access. May we remember that that's what the world needs. So take the gift of salvation that you have been given, the gift of salvation that made you a child of God, a child of the Most High God, a child of the eternal, all-sufficient God. Take that message of salvation and recognize there's a world around us that needs the same adoption. And may we live like that. Let's pray. God, you're good. And I sell it way short by just saying you're good. You have reached down and saved us from ourselves. You've saved us from our rebellion. You have saved us from our dysfunction. You have saved us from our idolatry. God, I thank you for mercy and grace. Now, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and cause us to see the people around us with your eyes. I ask, Lord, that you would give us courage and boldness to walk right over those boundaries. That we would share the message of hope with the people who need it most. We pray for those who are, are dead in their sins that today might be the day they experience real life. Lord, I ask that we would be reminded time and time again of our standing with you and how it has been given to us, gifted to us as a result of grace. We're your children and that has nothing to do with our goodness, it has everything to do with your goodness. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.